Businesses across this country are quite literally pleading for their futures. They want to be open. They want to try and earn a living and keep their staff employed. Government support has helped a few, but new restrictions and fear is impacting the future of business, small and large, in this country. We've asked Steve McClellan, CEO of the Saskatchewan Chamber of Commerce, to join us. We talked with you back in uh, the summer last, Steve, about this situation, and I think we were all a bit, I don't know, naive, maybe a little too optimistic, thinking the worst had passed and maybe we'd get back into the world, and then wham, right across the head. No question, yeah. We thought we'd, the, the concept of a second wave was just a phrase. It wasn't uh, among us. And now, of course, the conversation is, is this a continuation of the first wave? Uh, and are we going to see uh, another? And there will be many more waves of impact, if not of the illness. You wrote recently in, in the Saskatchewan papers, and I'll ju- I just want to read it for people to hear. Will the future be without our Main Street businesses, without our local to retail and restaurants and hotels and so on. I think we have said through the support that we've seen through shop local efforts and campaigns that people are voting with their dollars. They're saying, I want these folks to be open. There's a whole new level of awareness of our great capacities in each community that are locally owned, locally operated, and they appreciate now, I think more than ever, our citizens do, the value of keeping those folks there because they're not just a store, they're a hockey coach, they're a a nurse, they are people who pay taxes and contribute to Boy Scouts. Plus, they're job creators and our international uh, conglomerates certainly can create jobs, there's no question, but not to the same extent. This balance that everybody is trying to strike, and we hear premiers from coast to coast talking about it, the balance between lives and livelihoods. Of course, everybody wants to do the right thing and try and save lives. But if you don't keep these livelihoods going, then you have this whole, I don't know, first, second, third, and fourth wave of mental health issues. Uh That's even an issue we can't even get our arms around. That's right. First off, it's a false choice to say it's got to be right. to close businesses or or help the, the, the wellness of our people. It is absolutely integrated, not just from a mental health perspective, but also a physical health in terms of uh, people's wellness. COVID isn't the only issue in the in the communities these days of a healthcare concern. So you're right. Uh, business people and employees uh, are stressed because of the challenges that they faced. So if we have to say to those business people, you need to close down to solve a community problem, which is COVID, then we also need to say, we're gonna give you a community solution, which is supports to make sure that when you can open again safely, that you're viable to do it, that you have the finances to do it. See, what troubles me, and I think we spoke about this even the last time, which is 
uh, on two levels. When you've got uh, the Costco's open and the Walmart's open, um, everybody goes there. Then those stores are way too crowded. Uh, but the smaller mom and pop operations that may be selling some of the same things, or you could buy a similar product there, in some provinces are being closed down. In other provinces, people are just afraid to go in. So it's very hard to do the shop local thing, even though people want to do it. Absolutely. So Saskatchewan's found, the, uh, I think, a, the right model recently in terms of how our government's instructed, if you will, businesses to do that. And what it says is the big stores can stay open for groceries, but we don't need them to stay open for the rest of it necessarily. And instead of closing off those other aisles, they have said we're going to restrict the amount of people that can be there so that we're not having everybody in large crowds go to the big boxes. We've also then, they put a similar restriction, but it's not as... Uh, difficult for them for the smaller stores to be able to restrict the number of people but still sell the full spectrum of whatever they offer the other thing that fits into that whole equation once we've got the math worked out is that we need to make sure that our other businesses mostly the smaller medium-sized ones are in a position to tell people what they have because this is an age-old challenge. I didn't know you sold that. That's why I drove to the big city to buy it. Or I thought it would be cheaper there uh, in Costco rather than my local Balgoni grocery store or the IGA down the road. In fact, often it's not. And uh, we need to make sure that awareness level. And that's where the digital economy and social media marketing and websites that are enhanced will serve our community well. That's one of the lessons we're all learning out of COVID. I was talking to a small business owner the other day. This is in Ontario, and they were being shut down, of course. And people were emailing them and phoning them and saying, okay, now I want to do this online, and can you ship it to me, and can you get it there by the 15th of December or whatever it might be. But they weren't equipped for that. Their their shop is, you know, got a lot of Christmas stuff in it. You want to go in and feel it and touch it and say, oh, that's for Aunt Susie. That would be great. Um, and, and now they can't even respond. It's far too late. And that's the challenge. Uh, certainly seasonality because of Christmas, but even some types of businesses. If you sell pizzas, pretty easy to put it in a box, put it in a bag, deliver it. I get it. Right. But for those sorts of things, clothing is one thing. I want to see it. I want to feel it on me. I want to know what it, whether it fits. And for a gift, sometimes I need to walk down the aisles. And, and this is a message for all of the men out there who are still <laughs> looking for shopping things. We have to go to the store and, and look at it and go, that'll work. Because we don't know what we're looking for. Uh, exactly <laughs> and, and we can't pivot that quickly in this in the stores to make sure that we can we, we you know we don't have artificial intelligence that will allow a store to give you that experience now those that are pivoting quickly they're going to see some and are seeing some positive results putting some of their best sellers online getting photographs video tours of the stores all that kind of stuff is happening it's not happening quick enough but, but it has to happen because when we come out of COVID, one of the legacy items is people are going to say, no, no, I don't get out of my house to shop. I do it in my, on my laptop in my living room, and they're going to want to continue that. It needs to be in small stores shopping, of course, but uh, they right. need to get ready for it. The, the question that seems to be puzzling everybody, and, and you know, I'm in Ottawa with the, uh, with the Senate, and, and some stores are open here, and of course in Toronto they're shut down, and, and so there was literally a traffic jam the other day, because you could see people driving to places where stores were open. 
just outside of city limits. Just So we do do strange things as consumers. But one of the issues that's puzzling people is what is essential. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, maybe to some people a TV set isn't essential, but if you're locked in your house for the next uh, three, four, five mm-hmm. months, who knows how long this is, you might need a TV. Yeah, that's the hard part. And and even gyms and bingo parlors, people right. say for my physical and mental health, I need to get to the gym. There's arguments that would say that no, you should be able to do that at your home and maybe you can or you can't. But uh, that that is a challenge. But this goes back to the thing, one of the items we spoke of earlier, and that's that governments need to come together on this. We need to learn from this to say, here's what is essential. And because what the last thing I want is for a television store or a, uh, an appliance store to be deemed non-essential in Saskatchewan. So our residents drive across the border to Manitoba to buy a TV. That is not the objective of that sort of a policy. So in the, in the legacy moves of this post-COVID world, we need to, as a country, say that. This is what's, what essential means. And, uh, and then, then maybe if we have another one or when we have another one, we can lock down quicker uh, and still do those, do those things that we need to do to be well, to be fed, to be entertained, but not with such erratic changes miles apart. And that, that you hear that all the time. I can go to the liquor store. I can't go to church. Yeah. You know, we kind of got to sort that out. Yeah, that's exactly it. And for many people, their their faith, their worship is a big, big part of their mental health, part of their routine. Uh, and although that I'll give the, the, the faith communities full credit for pivoting so well, so quickly, it's not quite the same. I understand that. But they've got online services. There's online funerals. All of those sorts of things are happening. I feel for the families who don't have full closure on funerals and certainly the right. couples that are getting married. But that sector has moved pretty quickly. We need to learn from them and see what we can do to help keep them doing that in the future. There's a lot of discussion about this. We just touched on it briefly. Uh, Drug abuse is up. Um, I think opioid overdoses in in British Columbia are taking more people than COVID is. Um, Abuse in the home physical, mental abuse. We need to do something about mental health. And we all agree with that. What does that mean? Well, it means first uh, looking after yourself initially uh, to make sure that you're well enough to help others. And every Canadian, no matter where you are, what you do has been impacted somewhat by this. So making sure we're all individually well. And you're right about the numbers in Saskatchewan. It is like three times uh, the amount of opioid deaths, um, let alone the overdoses that where the people survived and they're still harmed than we've seen from deaths of, of uh, COVID. So it's a serious deal. And that uh, I'm not even getting into the suicides and so on. Right. So I, I think the first thing is to look after yourself. The second thing our provincial government has done just recently, as a matter of fact, and we applaud them for this, is, is assigned a minister responsible for uh, mental and addictions and mental health and addictions. That's a, that's a focused effort as a province and we applaud that. That has to be followed by tangible actions. It has to be followed with significant budgets, but uh, uh, people need to take responsibility. And even now, as more of us are working from home or our employees are there, we have a responsibility as employers and as friends and neighbors to check in with our neighbors and do it more often. Cause you can pick up a phone call somebody down the street uh, and just check in with them. And it could be a five minute call or a 50 minute call, making sure we're there. The other thing back to the individual or 
even a, a friend. Uh, there's lots of great services by the Canadian Mental Health Association and others, private companies that do this work across the country. People need to reach out. And even if they think, you know, I think I'm doing pretty well, if they've got a, the ability to call, uh, many of these services are available, of course, virtually or on a telephone. They need to check in with the professionals because maybe there's something that they could do to make sure they're even a little bit better. But it's, a, it's again, back to the community. It's a community responsibility. It starts with the individual, but it's a community responsibility to make sure that we're all well. And as we would do in a big storm, we would check on our friends and neighbors. How are you making right. out? You got everything. Uh, like people with snowmobiles might deliver food and groceries. Who knows? But the bottom line is we need to do that here. As a community, we will survive this together if we act together throughout it. And it's always a risky proposition. But if you think somebody is not coping, um, you you need to suggest that to them, even oh. though they may push back. But because you can't go over and sit down and have a cup of coffee and have a heart-to-heart, it's harder to do that stuff on the phone, but but you have to try. Absolutely, you have to try. And, and it, it, even if it's not as good, it's still better than not. And, and there are ways. I mean, you can still go over to their home if you think they're really in trouble, but stay 20 feet apart uh, and celebrate that and have fun with that element of it. Isn't it wild? Our lawn chairs are 20 feet apart uh, and, you, you know, there's in a the cup snow. of coffee. Exactly. <laughs> but you know what? Uh, we do that here on lawn chairs 20 feet apart. We call it ice fishing. Uh, but the, <laughs> the bottom line is you could do it in somebody's yard. And if we don't take that personal responsibility to reach out to those individuals, imagine how we'd feel uh, if something went uh, astray and we don't want that to be the case. I want to talk for a moment about the government aid because this is uh, also an issue that just remains a problem whether it's for the individual or through businesses. A lot of the business aid didn't go to the mom and pop shop. They didn't qualify. The rent assistance programs, the same problem. If you own your little corner store, these things don't really help you out. Um, and and I, there's federal programs and provincial programs. Is that getting any smarter? Yeah, it's getting better. Uh, the federal rent program, for example, went through a complete rewrite, so it's better. Uh, it was too long in coming and ill-advised, and groups like the Canadian Chamber of Commerce were very early on saying this is not the right model. The federal government continued with it, but uh, uh, I think they've got it much better now. I, I don't think that it will ever address every single business issue. But some of the realities in the in the Ottawa bubble, if you will, and this was a reality before COVID, uh, is that they, they didn't talk to those folks who were the owner of a business exactly. uh, who needed uh, not rent support, maybe not even mortgage support, but, but utility support, and, and that wasn't available. The other area that's still consistently a challenge is for those a single entrepreneurs or one or two person companies. Exactly. And even if, a, if an owner said, listen, I'm at the growth stage, I'm not paying myself a, a, a payroll check yet, they were not eligible for dollars. And we need those companies and those individuals to be uh, uh, productive and sustainable through this. So there were some there were some gaps. Some of them have been filled, not all. But again, uh, the, the history books will look back on this and say, here's a better way to do that. Do you think we've learned the targeting lesson, if I can put it that way, which is what works in Regina and Saskatoon does not work in Wadena, nor no. does it work in a remote northern community. No, we haven't. Uh, we haven't. We, uh, we understand it notionally, no question, but we haven't 
dealt with the tactics to, to make sure that those people get the service that they need. Now, geographic differences is one thing. The other thing that's an issue is um, uh, uh, who we helped. For example, seniors. Every senior in Canada got a paycheck, got a, a check. My dad and mother got a check, and it, it had bothered my dad greatly. He said, I don't need this money. Give it to people who need it. But the federal government, and in fairness, they were operating at a pace that was that was challenging. But they could have said, let's just uh, cross-reference this seniors list with those people uh, on their, uh, their Canadian revenue status. And if they don't need it, we're not going to send it to them. So put in a, uh, whatever the income number would be. Uh, that's the piece we've not got right. We don't have that connectivity to the need, and we can do it. We have the tax records. We have the ability to do those things on the non-application-based uh, funds, at least. So geography, we've got to get better at. You're right about that. The issue in northern Saskatchewan, way, way different than it would be for us in Regina. But we'll get there and we're getting better. We're not perfect at it. We need to get perfect at it because we will have another one of these issues. Exactly. Whatever it is, it might not be this kind of pandemic, but we see these responses when it's a short-lived one, when it's a snowstorm, everybody mm -hmm. knows what to do because yep. uh, we know of the time frame, but something that lasts a little longer. The government programs, I think there's a new one, um, uh, eligibility starts on middle of December or something like that. So uh, are these, the problem that you have with Ottawa is they want programs to be universal so that they're not targeting people uh -huh. uh, based on income or those kinds of issues. But in fact, we have to do this or otherwise we're throwing good money after bad. Are you seeing any changes yet in the provincial plans? Yeah, we are a little. There's a new program out this recently that that's a business support program, which is much appreciated. Certainly, it's got a short window. I'll, I'll admit that is a bit of a challenge with, with some ability for them to renew it after uh, December 31st, which we hope will be the case because we think the need will still be there. Uh, but targeting is absolutely the, the reality. And it makes a lot more sense to give $10,000 to somebody who really needs it than uh, $2,500 to four people and three of them don't. Yeah. Uh, and they, and they would admit that too. And on an application-based scenario, I think our businesses are being very honest. If they need it, they're getting it. If they don't, they're not applying. But uh, many, many more uh, businesses need more supports than we've been able to get them. Uh, that's part of the, the targeting piece that isn't perfect yet. Uh, the other final question I think I'll have for you is just, an, and you see your own membership in the Chamber of Commerce, talk to them regularly. Do we have the kind of leadership we need in the community? And then I guess the further question is what you see coming up in the world, either through entrepreneurs or through business schools. Are we giving people the training they need so that they can cope with risk and crisis? Uh, we have some great people in public service across the country, and for each of them, I applaud their efforts. Do we have the right mindset in each of them? No. And, and the piece that's missing is, is the statesmanship. And by that, I mean, if you're elected as a provincial government or a municipal government uh, councillor, MLA, whatever, premier, or federally, you're this, the, the citizens of this province, of this city, have said to you, these are the conditions that we want you to work under. So after election day, I would strongly urge, and they're not doing it, never have, probably never will, but I would strongly urge for them to say, 
uh, we're not a liberal or a conservative or a SAS party or an NDP. We're an MLA for Saskatchewan. We have to work with the government of Canada. And on some things we will disagree. And your show does a great job of talking about different opinions. It's one of the few places that has the ability to share that conversation. So are we learning, are we teaching them by example? Are young people by example? The answer is no, we're not. Because half of the political conversations are, those guys are doing it wrong at the other level or in the other party. Stop it. Stop it. We have so many important issues and opportunities ahead of us. If our young people listen to that, they should shake their head and say, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm going to pick out other people who are mentors, who want to bring Canadians together uh, from New Brunswick to British Columbia, from Regina to Wadena. We have so much more in common than we have that separates us. That leadership is what our young people need to follow, need to embrace. And from that, I think our, our tomorrows in Saskatchewan will be even better than our today. Steve, it's always great to talk to you because when all is said and done, you remain an optimist. And mm -hmm. <laughs> I think we need some glass half full kind of people around for these conversations, especially to get us through Christmas. Indeed. Well, listen to you. Have a very Merry Christmas and to all of your listeners as well. Uh, yeah. I love listening to the show and I love even more being part of it. Thank you. Yeah. Bella. So do we. Thanks, Steve. And Merry Christmas. We'll have the best one we can anyway. Indeed we can. Thanks a lot. We're going to come back in just a few minutes and carry on that conversation about whether we're training the leaders of the future uh, to deal with the situation we find ourselves in today. So stay tuned. So as promised, a conversation about leadership and whether or not our universities and business schools are actually creating the kind of people that can deal with the crisis that we find ourselves in the middle of. Dr. Gina Grandi is the Dean of the Hill and Levine Schools of Business at the University of Regina. She's also a professor on strategy and leadership. She's written books. She's taught at seven universities. And as you're about to hear, she grew up in Newfoundland. So you'll hear the accent. I always think that Newfoundland and Saskatchewan were separated at birth, right? Like <laughs> it's the same kind of people. It certainly is, Senator <laughs> Wallen. Thank you so much for having me here today. Um, I think the I think it is the connection to nature that brings Newfoundlanders yeah. and those from Saskatchewan together. So while on the East Coast it's the ocean, perhaps, and here it is, of course, the the land. But I do think that brings a particular sense of humbleness. Yeah, people are humble. People are down to earth. And people care about community. And it's flat and you can see forever. <laughs> you certainly can. You Water, certainly whatever can. it is. No, it, it is actually really true. I've covered this country several times on election campaigns and I've always felt that, that somehow we were, we were brothers and sisters. Anyway, we, we should get to the topic at hand. So we were just talking with Steve McClellan, of course, from the Chamber of Commerce about uh, lessons learned and whether or not we have the kind of people we need in the business community. He sort of responded on the political community, you know, that we need leaders that are a little bit faster in the, in the reaction, a little bit larger in their thinking. So it made me think about business schools and, and in a way, are, have you been able to capitalize on that? Are you saying to these kids today, this is one big fat giant case study about what happens when crisis hits? 
Absolutely. And just last week, I was giving greetings at an, a virtual, of course, event yeah. for our marketing students. And they had a group of almost 60 people joining us at that event. And that's essentially what I said. You know, this is tough. Times are hard. Um, there's a lot of pressure. But in fact, what we have right now is an eight-month live case study for business students and for all students, but in particular business students who we, you know, we use that case method in our classrooms. And, you know, this is experience that no other, you know, when we think about the future. So, you know, these exposures to looking at businesses to see who's surviving, who isn't, what are the resources, how are they adapting? When we look at the, the click and collect model. That's, you know, many businesses pivoted very quickly to be able to survive, but also to respond to the concerns in the community and the provincial um, and federal restrictions around movement for people. You know, our, this is a time for our students that they will build great resilience, the tolerance for ambiguity. I mean, in business schools, Senator Wallen, um, across the country, we have used case studies and, and research has shown that case studies build a high tolerance for ambiguity and help with decision making. But when we look at what our current students are facing in business schools now, while well, we wish it could be different. Yeah. It isn't. And it is an opportunity for them. And it means that really we also have a responsibility in business schools to make sure we're delivering that educational experience in a way to take advantage of those opportunities. What do you, you know, think one, they, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, one of the things we do know is we do know that business schools make an impact on their communities. And, you know, we talk about this and there's a lot of rhetoric, but at Hill and Levine last year, we did an impact study. So an economic and social impact study to assess the impact of the business school over a one year period. And to my knowledge, we are only one of two business schools in the country that have, you know, that took on that type of initiative. And what we found in that one year period, the two business schools, so the Hill and Levine Business Schools generated um, $211 million in economic activity for the province and added about $140 million to the provincial GDP. One in 280 yeah. jobs in Regina depend directly or indirectly on Hill and Levine schools of business. And that equates to approximately 470 jobs in Regina and over 800 jobs provincial wide. Uh, we also know that our approximately 1,700 students spent over $10 million in Regina in that particular year. Yeah. So we know that business schools matter to our economic and our social development, and we have a responsibility. And that's one of the, the lessons learned, which is everybody has to figure out what actual and real contribution they make uh, to their business and to their community. And I guess that's part of my question, which is uh, you can churn out kids that understand the math and, and business how to write a you know an IPO and they can practice all of those things. How do you instill in them? Certainly, this is a parental job too. But how do you say, look, running a business, contributing to the world in this way, requires a, a well-rounded person. Like you've got to get community. You've got to have compassion. That that's part of the the ticket. Absolutely, and. 
you know, our our students are remarkable, as you know, and yeah. I know we're not the only ones who can claim that, but we have built in our business schools and, and in fact, the students have been empowered to do to have that connection to community. You know, what we also know is looking at social impact, our student society through participating in five days for the homeless, so a national initiative, have raised more than $300,000 over the last 10 years for Carmichael Outreach. Um, in our community. We know that our JDC West student teams have raised more than $75,000 over the last three years for Hope's Home in our community. And we have a great example of, you know, talking about responding to COVID. So, of course, we have the Enactus Regina student group that are committed to social, I'm sorry, to conscious capitalism. Yeah, we were talking about this, just so you know, we talked with uh, Kathleen Kilgore recently on uh, on the podcast here, and we were talking about the Princess Trust and the boot camp and the the young men and women at Anactus, which are, they're extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. And one of the groups associated, a group of students associated with Anactus responded to a faculty advisor's challenge to say, can you do something to the community to support the community? And we saw the emergence of SAS Mass. So a group, a small group of students who took their skills, um, brought in people from the community who um, weren't working as a result of COVID and set up this social enterprise um, making um, mass, but also all of their proceeds go to charitable organizations. And they've yeah. raised in the last six to eight months, over $50,000 that have gone back to charitable organizations. So when you talk about, you know, business schools, absolutely. We have a responsibility in regards to making sure that leaders get out there and have, I'll say, certain skills on the numbers um, in regards to how appropriately to manage teams. But it is far more than that. We have a responsibility to be part of the community, to understand the needs of the community, and to be community leaders. And, and I'm quite proud to be part of a school where we see that in our faculty members, we see that in our students. And quite frankly, our students are demanding it. And yeah. isn't that rewarding to see this is where we need to be as business schools, because the students are expecting our future leaders expect us to create environments where they get those experiences. I, I should just declare my, I don't think it's a conflict. It's a, it's an interest that I do. Uh, I'm, I, I chair the advisory board for the Levine school for the Hill and Levine schools of business. I've been part of the leadership council there, which are people in the community. And, and I do think this is important. And, and when you see, these young faces and they come from farms in Saskatchewan and they come from other places. Uh, you know, they're good, solid citizens. What do you want them to learn if there's one thing out of this crisis when they come out, one thing that they need to take with them forward as a, as a business graduate, not as a psychology graduate or a nurse or a doctor, but as a business graduate? What I what the one piece of advice that I would say is and or what I would like for them to take away is that even in times in Christ of crisis or perhaps especially in times of crisis, we need to 
innovate, we need to experiment, and we need to be able to respond quickly. And so rather than be paralyzed by fear, because we haven't seen it before, to use this as an opportunity to innovate, experiment, and try, because it is through those pockets of innovation that we will see resilience, we will see economic recovery, and we will see a sustainable future. What did you have to do as a a university to respond? I mean, uh, some universities, or I guess I'll put it down to professors, some professors have been able to pivot and figure out how to relate to, to students with a an online learning and others have just said, I don't know, read some books and I'll give you a test. Like it has required the university to step up as well. It certainly has. And, you know, I think it's fair to say, you know, we are a learning institution and we're still learning through this. Um, You know, we like all other uh, higher education institutions had to pivot on a dime essentially. Um, You know, we have, I'll say within our faculty, but also the university invested Um, invested in regards to technology. But but we, for example, in the business school are doing ongoing student surveys, having town halls so that we can hear from students, their experiences in the moment and how is it we respond. The other thing I think is important to to note that not long after COVID hit, in our faculty, we put out calls for uh, research funding for COVID-related research, recognizing, yes, in our classrooms, but also what we do is research that goes in our classrooms, but in our community. And the U of R has, has done this similarly, but I, you know, we have, I'll give you a couple of examples. We mm-hmm. have um, a faculty member, Dr. Sheila Campbell, who's a part of an international network that's looking at the impact of remote working on workers during COVID, and these will have long-term implications. We have another faculty member, Dr. Gord Pennycook, who does research on fake news and actually has done work around trying to understand why and what people share on social media as it relates Mm -hmm. to COVID and why they are believing what they believe. You know, some of my own work, and we are the regional hub for the Women's Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub, which is a national network, you know, also looking at the impact on women entrepreneurs. And we know that women have been hit particularly hard by COVID because, of course, uh, childcare responsibilities, other domestic responsibilities, And we also know that in the service sector, women have been hit particularly hard. We have seen that they're even on the rebound of employment. We have seen that men, uh, we see a higher rebound and women continue to be. And what's also sadly unfortunate is that, um, you know, these effects have been amplified for women who have disabilities, and racialized indigenous and immigrant women. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of great work. You know, another great pocket from the university, Dr. Amber Fletcher in sociology is connecting artists with senior adults in rural communities across Saskatchewan to reduce the negative impacts of isolation. So the university is responding on the research side. And in the classrooms, we are also responding. And where we need to get to, Senator Wallen, is that this is not simply, as you say, that all of a sudden we just flick a switch. We have a responsibility to um, emulate that in-class experience. And again, I would say there are opportunities for university at this point in time in history. There will never be, I don't think, a pure uh, post-COVID 
You know, students' expectations are changing. When we get back to a place where people can come back to campus, students will continue to want those choices. And they want choices that actually are as rich as if they're sitting in the classroom. Well, and they're much more comfortable, by and large, with technology. I mean, that generation. And it raises a couple of questions for universities in, in general, which is having had this experience, it gives students choice. They don't have to come to Regina because it happens to be close to home. Uh, you know, they can literally go anywhere in the world and go to school if they can do it remotely. And then what do you do about that, the, the decades of university professors and instructors who are used to being, as you guys all call it, the sage on the stage, you know, preaching from the front of the room. That doesn't work so well on a YouTube video. No, and, and, and there's no doubt that that transition is tough, right? I, I would, yeah. be, you know, I would be, to say that it isn't, I would certainly not be reflecting what we see in universities across the country. But I am also, I have great optimism by the, I will say, lots of pockets of innovation and faculty members who have um, embraced this. There's all sorts of technology. If we think about an interactive classroom, well, there's technology out there now, software, whereby faculty members by Zoom can create um, virtual uh, murals where students are actually commenting and all of this is happening. So there are ways to do this. The other thing I want to notice, we have this great example of, you know, we have strong relationships in Mexico and mm-hmm. we bring students there every year. Well, this year we can't do it. You know, we have a faculty member at his initiative has decided, no, we do not want students to lose this opportunity. And has created a class that is an international course, and there will be a virtual international course with our connections in Mexico. Students will be doing virtual tours. And, you know, you talk about this as an opportunity. What we see as a result of this is that, you know, despite the support we provide to students to engage in international um, or study abroad tours, there's still an expense. Students, not all students can afford to leave exactly. their workplaces. Yep. But yep. this actually creates an opportunity for now, but the future, Senator Wallen, whereby actually imagine now the number of students can get that international experience without having to leave their jobs in Saskatchewan, without having to invest that amount of money, but they still get that rich experience. So we have a lot of work to do but but you know there there's I'm optimistic I think Alberta has actually uh, mandated it but everybody is looking at this the the will the uh, work integrated <laughs> learning uh, I mean it's there's been co-op programs forever and that kind of thing but but this is different this is just saying going forward this is going to be a combined process you will do both Absolutely. And it's interesting with the work integrated learning. So not surprising, we have seen since COVID that many of the co-op placements have been canceled. You know, employers just can't do it. What we have done, as has our partners, I will say at Edwards School of Business, we've partnered with MyTAC, so a national uh, research agency, and they have a special program around internships. For, you know, small SME firms who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford or maybe not survive nonprofit organizations. And we have pivoted so that some of those students who can't get co-op placements 
now actually have these internships to help get through this period of COVID so they get that work integrated learning. And you're right. I mean, that work integrated learning is more than internships. There's so many things we have to do. And right now we have to be innovative because we can't get people in the classroom physically. So what do we do? Do we do virtual tours with CEOs? So CEO for a day in a virtual format. There are ways we can do this. um, And this is a time for us to experiment and play so that so that when we get through this, there are all kinds of innovations we have actually put in place that will be able to adjust to somebody who happens to be in Prince Albert, who right. wants to be in our program and wants to take advantage of work integrated learning. Well, what resources and opportunities do we have for them that match the resources and opportunities we have for someone who is here actually in Regina? And you have to add to that combination mentoring, which is different than teaching. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're pleased. We have in our faculty, three executives in residence. Mm -hmm. So the RBC woman executive in residence, we have a new resident uh, executive in residence in agribusiness. And we also have the Rawlinson indigenous uh, entrepreneur executive in residence. And we have that programming also in place that provides that mentoring opportunities for students that's beyond what's happening in the classroom. How are you going to make sure that, let's just say next fall, um, deal with these two issues, which is one, students can go anywhere they want virtually, and two, some of them may just say, look, it's been a rough year, I've got to go out and work if we're back there, and and I don't know if I'm coming back to school or not, because our family's in a rough spot, and and I really need to make a contribution. It's going to be hard to bring people back in. It is two things I will say to your questions. One is we are already planning for, um, I'll say, different modalities of delivery. So in in one way, we were ahead on our grad side because we had already outfitted um, some of the classrooms to be able to deliver in multiple formats. We are right now planning for that. So here's what I would envision. I would envision that in a particular for a particular class, what we are going to do is to have some that will physically be in a classroom with the instructor. We're not going to be in place in a place next fall where we're going to be able to get 70 people in a room. I really don't think we will. So we will link to two or three other classrooms so that actually we can get a number of students physically there if they want to be. However, I also think there ha- there will be the third modality linked to that so that students who are actually in their homes or they are in somewhere else in the province or the country will also be able to jo- join that classroom. So we have to be right now and we are changing our physical structures so that actually we can support those three types of mod- modalities in September. The other thing in regards to, you know, once we pass this and and you know, we have been fortunate and, and I suspect many others because right now, because of job limitations and employment opportunities, I think we have students who are saying, no, I'm going to I'm going to put my head down and I'm going to try to finish my program or, or as much as I can. When this passes or when it passes to a certain extent, we are going to see a greater demand for things like micro credentials. 
Right. And we're working on that. And this is where we have to be able to rethink what we do around whether it's not a full degree. Um, Let's just uh, explain that because that's a really, I mean, we see executive MBAs and, and people coming back from the workforce trying to condense this, but people really are looking for a ticket in that and a certificate in this to enhance what they're doing. I mean, they may get a BA or they might get a, a business degree, but then they, they want these other things to say, look, I, this is, this is specialized. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and this notion of the micro-credentials then could be one course, it could be three courses mm-hmm. in a particular area. And what we need to do, Senator Wallen, is to make sure we remove those barriers to entry, right? So that if we have somebody who actually says, I want to do an entrepreneurship certificate, or I want to do a certificate or a micro-credential in labor relations or mm-hmm. in project management, well, let's make sure sh- what we need to be doing right now is actually making sure that admissions process is actually seamless and easy so that people have options and they think, actually, I can continue to work full-time and I'm going to work to this kind of smaller bite-sized piece of something that actually give, enhances my credibility, gives me new skills without the commitment of having to sign up for a two-year or four-year program. Right. And, you know, and that is, I mean, we've started that process, but when we think about next September, when we think about the year after that, that's where we need to be ready because people, the demand will change and it is already changing in regards to the expectations of what students and prospective you, students are thinking about. You better get a micro-credential in crisis management because I think there's going to be a lot of people looking for that. Absolutely. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks Absolutely. Gina, so much. I've got, I've got to say, I know Gina, so I know how she works, and she says herself that she's really terrible at life-work balance. You're a woman after my own heart. I do the, do the same thing, but, but you do have a lot on your plate last, right now to think about what education needs to, to look like. Yeah, we we all do. But here's what I yeah. will also say is that, again, I go back to the notion that, you know, I this is not to downplay all the challenges, but I'm also fairly pragmatic in the sense that we have this situation. In many ways, we have no choice. What, you know, this is an opportunity for us to experiment. Um, we're only going to get a certain period of time, yeah. Senator Wallen, before yeah. we get this right. This is a time to reimagine. And in some ways, It is this time where we have all been forced, businesses, higher education, things we've been talking about for a long time. Well, right now, actually, we better get it together. And this is, to me, despite the stress, despite all the, this is actually an opportunity for us to play a little bit so that we can actually have a significant role in what the future looks like in higher education. I agree with you totally. And we're even trying to bring the Senate into the 21st century. So, you know, change is possible. Change is possible. That's exactly (laughs) right. That's exactly right. I want to thank you so much for making time for me today. It's been a pleasure as usual. And uh, I certainly am looking forward to being a part of and seeing what higher education looks like in the next six months and next two years, because it will never be the same again. No, it really won't. Gina Grandi, she is the Dean at the Hill and Levine Schools of Business at the University of Regina. Don't you just love that Newfoundland accent? Anyway, we'll see you soon. Merry Christmas. Thanks so much, Senator Wallen. (laughs) Bye-bye.